as we prepare our hearts to come to your word this morning, Lord. We pray once again that you would nourish us, that you would use your word to strengthen us, to edify us, to grow us in the likeness of Christ. We remember that your word is breathed out by your spirit and that it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And that every word in your word is there for our benefit. It's there for us to learn from. And so we ask, O Lord, that we may hear the voice of our Good Shepherd calling us by name, instructing us, and feeding us, that we may become more like Him. For His glory and in His name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We'll be continuing our study in 1 Samuel today, covering chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 12, the whole chapter. We'll be looking at the whole chapter today of 1 Samuel. Being a disciple of Jesus, if you haven't figured it out by now, it can be very costly. That's kind of what this chapter teaches us. It at least reminds us of this principle, that being a disciple of Jesus Christ can be very costly. That's something that anyone and everyone who desires to follow Jesus will discover and and must come to terms with at some point. Sometimes it's at a crossroad that a person will come to early in their walk with Christ. Uh, Sometimes not. Sometimes it's, it's years before they figure that out. But at some point, make no mistake about it, every Christian will develop an understanding of of this simple and yet such a difficult principle that being a disciple of Jesus Christ is costly. There there were many people who followed Jesus at various points throughout His ministry, and there were times when those who were following Him were brought to that crossroads. Jesus would actually bring them in in that moment to that crossroads. The fact, the realization that they might not have been following him for the right reasons. Uh, It it happens all the time. Uh, People come to this realization that they they weren't uh, really all that interested in Jesus to begin with. And and actually the parable of the soils, that's one of the things uh, that it reveals to us is that this happens. In fact, it happens fairly often. At one point in his ministry, Jesus had gathered a fairly large following And at this point, he he just stops in his tracks and he turns to all the masses and multitudes that are following him. And he says to them, if anyone wishes to come to me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. That's from Luke 9.23. But interestingly, uh, it's something that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all quote Jesus as having said. I find that interesting. I I find that very informative because while there's some overlap in in the things that they quote and the things that they record, there's not an exact overlap, but here there is. It's something that the early church, the early Christians needed to know in the minds of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and of course the Holy Spirit who inspired them to write. But Jesus continued in verses 24 and 25, saying to them, For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? 
Being a disciple of Jesus can be costly. And so Jesus brought the multitudes who were following at that point to a crossroads where they would have to come to terms with that principle, with the fact that following him was going to come at a cost. Now, of course, these words were spoken on the road that ultimately led to Calvary, where Jesus would literally bear a cross and die. But if we understand what Jesus is saying here, if we understand that, that the life that we have now is actually very short, and that eternity awaits and eternity is unfathomably long, and if we understand that eternity hangs in the balance as we come to that specific crossroads in our minds it should be an easy decision, right? Whatever the cost, I'll follow Jesus. In our minds, intellectually, we know that it should be an easy decision. And yet, it's easy in theory, but not so much in practice. It's not such an easy decision. And that's why people so often turn away from Jesus when they're directly confronted with the cost. When suddenly they realize, oh, this is going to cost me something so what is it that makes it so easy in theory and yet so difficult in practice? I'll give you one word for the answer. Idolatry. Idolatry is what makes it difficult. Why did Jesus turn away the rich young ruler? Idolatry. Because the rich young ruler was an idolater and Jesus demanded that if you're going to follow me, you cannot bring your idols with you. So get rid of your idols, sell all your possessions, all your stuff, that was his idol, and then you can follow me. Now, what is idolatry? Well, it can just be worshiping a, a little statue. It, it can be that. But idolatry is really putting anything before God, loving anything more than you love God, prioritizing anything over your priority of God. It can be absolutely anything. It can be money, of course. That's an easy one. Jesus commonly attacked that idol. He said things like, you cannot serve God and wealth or God and money in Luke 16, uh, 16 13. But that's an easy one, right? We, we know that. We know that intellectually and it's not that difficult for our hearts to follow. Most Christians are pretty comfortable with that one, that you cannot serve God and money. And people who don't have more money than they know what to do with, they're really comfortable with that. It's an easy pill to swallow for most people. But let me give you another pill, one that isn't necessarily so easy to follow, one that might even wound you or offend you. Another common idol, and this one might seem a bit surprising, is family. Is it possible to love your, your mother and love your father more than you love God? Is it possible for your priority to be your, your mom and dad instead of your parents? It's possible, of course. It's absolutely possible. I'd say that this happens actually far more frequently than we're probably comfortable admitting. But Jesus actually addressed this. He said this, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yet, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. From Luke 14, 26. Now, of course, hate in that context doesn't mean like despise or, uh, or anything like that. What it means is that your love for Jesus should be so great that your love for the people that you're most likely to love should look like hatred in comparison. So yes, it's possible for the family to become an idol. I had a discussion with somebody on social media a few weeks ago who was arguing that your high, a man's highest priority uh, is, is his family. I said, no, it's not. 
It's, it's the Lord. It, it's, it's following Jesus. So why does Jesus even say this? For the same reason that he warned about money. Because anything, anything that we love more than God or that we prioritize before God will actually serve to pull us away from God. And it will inhibit our obedience and our service unto God. Jesus may as well have said, uh, you cannot serve God and family, or you cannot serve God and self. You cannot serve God and your spouse. Or how about you cannot serve God and sports? We love sports. Oh, Sunday morning. Oh, what a, what a dilemma. No, it's not. Not for the Christian, it's not. Uh, you cannot serve God and, and school. Uh, you cannot serve God and politics. Because you cannot serve God and any other idol. And all of those things can be idols. In fact, they are common idols in our culture. Being a disciple of Jesus is always costly. Idolatry is the subject of the first commandment, which we know says, you shall have no other gods before me. That's from Exodus 20, verse 3. Now, our, our natural inclination when we read that, you know, you, you shall have no other gods before me, in the English language is to think that God is basically saying, okay, you're going to establish a hierarchy and you need to have me as the top. Almost as if God, you know, God is saying, uh, you shall put only me at the top of your totem pole, proverbial totem pole. But in the Hebrew, what we see is that God is saying, in essence, you shall have no other gods in my presence. So before me in that sense. So God was saying, you shall have no other gods before me, in the same sense that I would say that that you're sitting before me this morning. You shall have no other gods before me. This was a command that forbade idolatry in every sense. Now, you should understand that there are two ways that we can commit idolatry. One of them is to worship or serve a God other than Yahweh, uh, who alone is the true and living God. But there is a second way to commit idolatry, and that is to treat God as if He exists for us. And when we do that, what we end up doing is chiseling God down, removing this or that attribute, so that He's actually more like us. Uh, So he actually becomes a smaller God, a different God than the God who reveals himself in Scripture. Uh, R.C. Sproul, commenting on this second way of idolatry, uh, once said, quote, Idolatrous views of God are rampant within current evangelicalism. I find a God who is not immutable, who is not infinite, who is not holy, and who is not sovereign. Such a God is simply not God. It is an idol. End quote. So the passage that we, come, that we come to today reminds us of the great danger of idolatry. It shows us the absolute, unquestionable supremacy of Yahweh in comparison to idols, to false gods. It shows us the utterly pathetic powerlessness of idols, reminding us as we read in Psalm 96 that all the gods of the peoples are idols. It also shows us how impossible it is for a man to turn his own heart from idolatry apart from God's grace and to seek and know the one true living God. And thus we're reminded in this passage once again of how desperate our need for grace truly is. 
Now to set the stage a little bit for what we're going to see in chapter 5 here, we've seen that Israel has been conquered uh, in, in battle by the Philistines who invaded the land at the beginning of chapter 4. Immediately, Israel goes out to meet them and they lose 4,000 men on the battlefield initially, 4,000 men. And so the elders of Israel get together and they decide to send the Ark of the Covenant of God out onto the battlefield as a way of, more or less, uh, pulling out their biggest weapon, pulling out the big guns, so to speak. Or so they thought. Because God will not be mocked. And God will not be used or manipulated. And so as the ark went out onto the battlefield, Israel lost 30,000 men, including Phinehas and Hophni, the tabernacle priests, the sons of Eli, who did not know or even fear God and who thus defiled the tabernacle with their wicked ways. But worse than that, the ark of God was captured by the wicked Philistines. Now initially, the the Philistines, we saw they were very fearful of it. They thought that it posed this immense threat to them, but it didn't. At least not in the way that they had feared. They they figured uh, that much out as they absolutely obliterated Israel out on the battlefield. But they didn't feel the need to obliterate the Ark of the Covenant of God. They seem to have thought, well, okay, we've got their God. Maybe their God will be useful to us at some point. Which, by the way, shows us that the Israelites were idolaters just as much as the Philistines were at this point. And so they brought the Ark of the Covenant of God, back to the city of Ashdod, as we'll see today. So the point of this chapter, the point of our passage today, is that God alone reigns supreme over all the idols and false gods that the minds of fallen man can conceive of. And thus we must seek the grace of the one true living God who makes all the false gods, all the idols of man, to fail and fall. So our passage today takes place at roughly the same time as the second half of chapter 4 uh, when, when uh, Eli fell over and died and Eli's daughter-in-law, Phineas's widow, died uh, upon hearing the news of the Ark of the Covenant being lost. So let's start with verses 1 to 5 of chapter 5. It says, Now the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it to the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Then the Ashdodites arose early the next morning. Behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and let and set him in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both the palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor all who entered Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Now, while the ark of the covenant was out on the battlefield and did nothing to harm the Philistines while it was out there. 
What's going to become increasingly clear in this chapter is that the same can't be said of the ark of God once it falls into the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines bring the ark from Ebenezer. You'll remember that's where the Israelites had, had gathered to, uh, to confront the invading Philistines. Uh, that's where the, bo- the battle was fought and won. So they bring it from Ebenezer to a city called Ashdod. Uh, Ashdod would have been roughly 30 miles to the southwest of Ebenezer. So this would have been two days, maybe three days uh, following their victory. Now, what we aren't told is specifically why the ark was brought to Ashdod, but it appears to be, uh, or appears to have been, because that's where the false god of the Philistines was housed. Uh, So upon bringing the Ark of God into the city, they put it in what's called the House of Dagon, the false god of the Philistines. And they put the Ark right next to Dagon. Dagon seems to have been the highest and the most revered out of all the Philistine gods. They had several gods, but this seems to have been sort of their their go-to god. Uh, We read of uh, Dagon in uh, in the story of Samson being captured Uh, by the Philistines in Judges chapter 16, verse 23, which says this, it says, The lords of the Philistines assembled to offer a great sacrifice to Dagon, their god, and to rejoice, for they said, Our god has given Samson, our enemy, into our hands. So this seems to kind of be their their chief god, their their favorite god, uh, at least when it comes to war um, and fertility. But further, according to Strong's Hebrew lexicon, the word Dagon means fish. Uh, and it refers to, quote, a Philistine deity of fertility represented with the face and hands of a man and the tail of a fish. So bringing the object, the ark, which represented God's presence into what they called the house of Dagon might have seemed like a pretty appropriate expression of victory to them, as if the God of the Philistines had taken the one true living God of creation captive. Uh, that's obviously not the case. Uh, this, but this wasn't just an expression of one nation experiencing victory over another. It, it seems more likely that this was an expression of Dagon triumphing over Yahweh. Now think about it. How many times have you heard someone say, kids, you guys have probably heard this, but adults, you've heard it too, my house, my rules. So who, whose rules do you think they expect to take place or to, to be followed in the house of Dagon? Uh, it's kind of a general rule of order that spans borders and generations. It seems like that's what the Philistines we're probably thinking here, uh, you may think that Yahweh is going to follow someone else's rules, but do you think he's actually going to? Absolutely not. You think he's subservient to anyone else in any sense? Absolutely not. So obviously, this was not going to end well for them. Because Yahweh is not like the idols of the peoples, the nations, fallen man. And to treat Yahweh like an idol can only lead to some very serious problems, to put it as as nicely and as lightly as I can. But let me say this. Nobody has ever treated God like an idol who didn't end up regretting it. Nobody. Nobody. The Philistines thought they could treat Him that way, but they were deeply deceived. But as Blakey notes in his commentary, he says, quote, "...the great object of these chapters, chapters 5 and 6, 
is to show how God undeceived the Philistines on this all-important point, end quote. Now, we don't know exactly, again, why they chose to bring the Ark of Yahweh into the house of Dagon. It's not, it's not clear exactly. Uh, perhaps because they thought that Dagon would do somehow that he would be the one to uh, do the work of destroying the symbol of Yahweh's presence, or maybe it was just a, a, a place to store it while they figured out what to do with it. Whatever the case may be, God was going to show them that it was an absolutely, ridiculously foolish move on their part. And so the next morning, the Ashdodites come to open the house of Dagon to discover that something weird had taken place. Something odd had occurred overnight. They come in and they find Dagon, their favorite god, face down in the dirt right in front of the Ark of Yahweh. Now, I don't know what you picture here. I don't know what other people might picture in their minds as they read us, uh, as they read this, but one, uh, one picture I get, one image I get in my mind is a picture of a fighter, maybe a boxer, standing over his opponent who has been laid out and just knocked out cold. Uh, in, in mixed martial arts, they call it a knockoff walk, uh, a walk-off knockout, meaning that the victor is able to celebrate his victory before his opponent even hits the canvas, because he knows before the referee even has time to intervene that his opponent is taking a little nap. Uh, that's maybe one image that you might get here, but uh, there's another image. It's a picture also of uncontested defeat. Um, but there's a second one. Uh, it, it, it's also a picture of submission or worship. Uh, this false god is bowing face down in the dirt before Yahweh. So what we should see is that the Philistines, they don't even follow their own god, actually. Because if they did, they too would have fallen his example. They would, have, they would have bowed down. They would have fallen face down in the dirt before the one true living God, just like their God did. Now you have to think that as the Hebrew author writes this, he's probably chuckling to himself. He's probably having a, a difficult time containing his laughter because the next detail he provides is that the Ashdodite people picked Dagon up and put him back in his place. This God... Dagon was so worthless that he needed these people who, who viewed themselves as subservient to him uh, to, to pick him back up and to put him back where he belonged. Poor, poor Dagon. The people had to help the poor guy get back on his feet and put him back in his rightful place. I mean, some God Dagon is, right? How unlike Dagon Yahweh is, though. And how unlike Yahweh, Dagon is. Acts 17, 24 and 25 says, The God who made the world and all the things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands, as though He needed anything, since He Himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. That's what Paul preached to the people on Mars Hill uh, in Acts about the one true living God, Yahweh. But we can actually absolutely apply it to what we see taking place here in 1 Samuel chapter 5, where this God is served by human hands. This God does need people to serve Him. He needs it. He doesn't just desire it. He needs it. He's powerless if they don't pick Him up. He can't do it Himself. 
God, on the other hand, doesn't need to be picked up. He doesn't need you to stand him up. He doesn't need anyone to stand him up because nobody, nobody is going to knock him down. He doesn't need to be cuddled. He doesn't need to be protected. He isn't a helpless God who needs to be sustained or aided by anything or anyone. He's unlike every other idol. Now you, you have to see that nothing and no one compares to this God, to Yahweh. No other so-called gods, with a small g, can even begin to contend with Him. And He will not coexist with them, regardless of what those silly little bumper stickers try to imply. No, He reigns supreme over every single one of them. He won't be tamed. He won't be polite. He won't be tolerant of your idols. He will contend with them and they will all end up like Dagon, face down in the dirt. The Ashdodites not only don't follow their God's example, which is, by the way, what they should have done. What they should have done when they, when they walked in on this is they should have fallen down, face down in the dirt before God. They should have fallen, uh, fallen down in worship and in repentance before Him. But they just don't think anything of what happened, apparently. They, they don't make anything of it. They just figure, huh, oh, must have been an accident. And so they put Dagon back in place, and then the same thing or something similar happens the next night. The next night, Yahweh sends a stronger message. The next night, Dagon not only ends up face down in the dirt before Yahweh, but this time, the second time, his head and his hands are cut off. Oh, what could that mean? What could it mean? What's the symbolism of his head and hands being cut off? Well, he's, he's headless. He's handless. He can't think. He can't speak. He can't do anything with his hands. Actually, cutting the head and the hands off of a defeated adversary was a common practice in the ancient world. Uh, it was a sign of, of victory. Their heads and their hands would be chopped off and kind of kept in a gruesome sense as trophies of war. Uh, so what are we to make of Yahweh doing this to Dagon? You might say that Dagon had the godness just kicked out of him once and for all, right? But this is what Yahweh does to false gods. He doesn't tolerate them. In fact, he slays them. He destroys them. He defeats them in such a way that the idols and the false gods are humbled right before the eyes of those who worship and feel a sense of devotion to these false deities. So let me ask you this. What idols have you allowed to contend with God in your heart? What idols have you allowed into your house, into your life, to maybe stand alongside the one true living God? You have to know, you have to know that God will not just stand beside your idols peacefully. God isn't just going to leave your idols alone if you're one of His children. He's going to throw them back in the dirt, face down, and show His supremacy over them. And if you try to pick that idol back up and put it upright in your life again, it's only a matter of time before He slays your idols. Ralph Dale Davis notes in his commentary, he says, quote, The danger is that contemporary Christians may think that they are not dim-witted pagans, and so naturally such matters of humorous and historical interest have nothing to do with them. End quote. But let me warn you 
against that kind of thinking. Because this has everything in the world to do with us. We are just as prone to idolatry as people were back in this time, 3,000, 3,500 years ago. People today are idolaters just as much as they were back then. We all worship something or someone. So this has everything in the world to do with you and how you live in the modern world. What God wants us to see in this passage is the same thing that He wanted the Israelites to see and the same thing he, I, I suppose He wanted the Philistines to see, and that is that there is only one living God. And He alone, He alone is worthy of our worship and our devotion. And here's the thing. Unlike every other God, He's not dependent on you. He doesn't need you to cooperate with Him in order to demonstrate His glorious supremacy or to fulfill His plans and promises. He doesn't need you. Rather, you're the one who needs Him. He doesn't depend on you. You depend on Him. He won't yield to you. You must yield to Him. The fact is that we're so prone to think of God the same way that the Philistines thought of Dagon. That He exists just like we've created Him. And and that His job is just to give us what we want. And so we'll we'll just kind of keep Him tucked away in His own place until we maybe need Him for something. But God doesn't need us. We need Him. Listen to what He says in Isaiah 46, verses 3-5. to He says, listen to me, O house of Jacob and all the remnant of the house of Israel, you who have been born by me from birth and have carried and have been carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I will be the same. And even to your graying years, I will bear you. I have done it and I will carry you. I will bear you and I will deliver you. To whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we would be alike? So it's impossible for us to think of God as being like us, to chisel Him down to a point where He resembles us. At that point, you have a different God. But the message here is simply this. God reigns supreme. Yahweh reigns supreme. And so for us, we have to resist any and every inclination that we might have to, to compare Him to us, to, to think lightly or lowly of Him, to chisel Him down to our image. No, we're reminded here that God doesn't need us to defeat His enemies. If you, tend, if you spend any time on social media, you'll see before long that a large group of people on social media think that we are here to, uh, to fight God's fight, to, to fight His battles and to defeat God's enemies. That is simply not the church's calling at all, in any sense. If we defeat them in in any way, I suppose it should be only that we preach the gospel to them, and God uses our sharing of the gospel to convert them so uh, so that they are no longer estranged from God, but that they become themselves sons and daughters of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We aren't called to establish ourselves as a political power. That is an idolatrous view of God. And yet it's such a common view of God today. No, our calling is simply to live as loyal, obedient citizens of God's kingdom first and foremost here on earth.
the lesson here, as Dagon is destroyed, is that we must repent and seek the grace of the one true living God before whom all will bow one day in humble obedience and submission. We're told that to this day, verse 5, we're told that to this day, which obviously refers to the years immediately following this incident, Dagon's defeat, to this day the Ashdodites would not tread on the threshold of Dagon's house. They would not go back in there again. But you have to know that God doesn't just slay the false gods who would contend with him. No, he, he does slay the false gods who contend with him, but he also judges the people who practice idolatry. Let's continue, verses 6 to 8. It says, Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the Ashdodites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territories. When the men of Ashdod saw that it was so, they said, The ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is severe on us and on Dagon our God. So they sent and gathered all the lords of the Philistines to them and said, What shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they said, Let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath. And they brought the ark of the God of Israel around. Dagon was left without head or hands, but God's hand is heavy upon the worshipers of Dagon. Every commentary uh, I read on this passage said something to the effect that what is described through this passage uh, sounds very much like it could have been a case of the bubonic plague. Um, that's very uh, what was very prominent in the ancient world in coastal cities. Uh, Ashdod was in the coastal region. Coastal regions uh, would often be infested by rats that came in on boats uh, from distant places. Uh, so this is at least a possibility that this was a case of the bubonic plague. Although at the same time, we don't want to uh, give like some kind of naturalistic explanation for this. This is the heavy hand of God on the people. But whatever it was. Uh, whether it was the bubonic plague or just the hand of God being heavy on the people, it was severe. It was bad. Now, there's actually a play on words here in the Hebrew that you won't catch in the English translation. It just gets lost in translation. Uh, but Woodhouse notes in his commentary, quote, In Hebrew, one word, kabod, means glory and heavy. The mother said in Shiloh, Where is the kabod? Now we learn that in Ashdod, the hand of the Lord was kabod. So where is the glory? It's heavy on the Ashdodites. But isn't it fascinating to see that the worshipers of Dagon in Ashdod clearly see the connection between the pestilence uh, that's spreading through their region and the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. Yahweh had gotten their attention just as he seeks your attention today. But the Philistines don't respond rightly. They don't respond in repentance. Instead, they respond by removing the symbol of God's presence from their midst. They decide to put the God of Israel down in a city called Gath instead. 
Now, it's interesting, the lords of Israel thought that the Ark of the Covenant was the solution to their problems back in chapter 4, and here in chapter 5, we see that the lords of the Philistine, uh, of the Philistines think that the Ark of the Covenant is the cause of their problems. Of course, this is almost comical. It's supposed to be almost comical. Uh, if you have a rabid dog, think about it. Do you give that dog to your neighbors uh, because you decide that it's doing too much damage in your own house? Uh, you know, one has to wonder what your neighbor did to make you hate their guts so much that you would just hand off your rabid dog to them. Uh, now, of course, we're not talking about a rabid dog here. We're talking about Yahweh and pestilence spreading because he's being dishonored. But let me assure you that a rabid dog is far more tame than God's righteous hatred of his wrath against idolatry and so as you might expect as the ark of the covenant gets moved to this city called gath uh, it still doesn't go well for the people let's continue verses 9 to 12 it says after they had brought it around to gath that is the hand of the lord was against the city with very great confusion And he smote the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And as the ark of God came to Ekron, the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of the God of Israel around to us to kill us and our people. They therefore... Uh, They sent therefore and gathered all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were smitten with tumors and and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So moving the ark from Ashdod to Gath doesn't do any good. Uh, It doesn't go so well. The pestilence on the land uh, goes and spreads wherever the ark of Yahweh goes. And so in no time at all, tumors and confusion set in on the people. Uh, God's hand is still very, very heavy against his enemies. And so God shows, once again, that He has no tolerance, not only for idols, but He has no tolerance for those who worship idols. He has no tolerance for those who practice false religion. His hand is heavy against not only their idols, not only their gods, but is also heavy against those who worship these false gods and idols. And so... Once again, the Philistines decide to move the Ark of the Covenant. They decide to get the Ark out of Gath and send it to Ekron as though the Ark of, uh, of Yahweh is just like a hot potato. It's kind of like they're playing a game of hot potato. Who wants this? We'll send it to the people we dislike the most uh, among us. That's what it seems to be because they're convinced, hey, our own people are trying to kill us. The rulers of the Philistines are called together and the people of Ekron plead with them saying, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place so that it will not kill us and our people. These are the same people, by the way. These are Philistines. The same people who, when they realized that the ark of Israel's God was coming out onto the battlefield, had stirred up one another saying, Be men and fight. Well, their, their fighting spirit has been broken, clearly. Uh, they're, they're ready to give up. In the same way that they had earlier put Dagon in his place, the Philistines just think that they, they need to just 
do something with the Ark of, of, of the Covenant, the Ark of, of, uh, of Yahweh, it needs to go back to its place again, to the place where it belongs, to ensure their own safety. But really what we see is they're giving up. They just don't want to possess Israel's Ark, Israel's God anymore. They want nothing to do with Israel's God. Did you catch that? They wanted nothing to do with God. Nothing sadder can be said of a person. So don't let that be said of you. We must see the message here. We have to heed the message that we find between the lines here. There are so many idols, there are so many false gods contending every day for your hearts and minds. If you think about it, every commercial is an idol trying to entice you, trying to seduce you, trying to contend for your heart and mind, trying to make you envy, trying to make you discontent with what you have. There are so many idols, so many false gods contending for your hearts and minds every single day. If you look across the landscape of our nation, you see this taking place absolutely everywhere. You see people devoting their lives to social activism, to promoting this or that ideology. And people just get swept away by it. Masses and multitudes of people just get swept away by it. Even churches in our day and age have been swept away by the waves of postmodernism, of socialism, of social justice, of Marxism, of, of blatant Satanism. What do you think abortion is? Many in our day worship false gods and idols. Many in our day would say that the church is losing ground in our culture because the church of old just doesn't have the appeal. So we need to modernize if we're going to survive. If we're going to survive, what they say is we must conform to the culture rather than contending with it. And I would say that is a false dilemma. This is a reminder that God is the one who wins the battle. The people couldn't do anything against the Philistines. The Israelites were were helpless against them. God is the one who wins the battle. He's the one who takes care of His enemies. The Israelites couldn't defeat the Philistines by becoming like the Philistines, but they also wouldn't defeat them by contending, by fighting with them either. This chapter, in that sense, is a reminder that the job of God's people is to neither conform nor contend with God's enemies. Perhaps it's easier to convince Christians that we're not to conform to the world than it is to convince them that we're not to go on the offensive and and gain control of politics or anything like that. Sure, it would be great if we gained politics and and if politics reflected the law of God. That would be fabulous, but that's not what God has called the church to have as their first priority. That's not our calling. We're not to contend for political power. You never see the first century church saying, hey, we need to, we need to overthrow Caesar and put you know, one of our own in his position. It never happens in Scripture. That's not our calling. Rather, our job is simply to keep ourselves free of idolatry of every flavor and to remain faithful to God. In Richard Phillips' words, as he comments on this text, he says, quote, The church in its 
Spiritual mission is not called to wage worldly warfare against our enemies. In His own time, in His own ways, we can be sure that God will humble the idols of the world. We are to remember the Lord, trusting in Him and spreading His gospel. End quote. And that is what God has equipped us with. That's the weapon we yield. The gospel. Preaching the gospel. Israel had clearly lost the plot here. They were at this point estranged from God. They were like orphans because they had left their father. That's what idolatry results in. But here is our hope and here is our joy that even when God's people fail and fail miserably as Israel has here, God's purposes and God's promises never fail. Never Listen, the enemy of your soul loves to lie to you. And he wants you to believe that Yahweh is not enough. That Yahweh is insufficient. That his promises might not come to pass. That they won't bring you happiness. His ways won't bring you happiness. That that he'll give you nowhere near the happiness that you deserve, or the happiness that you'll find if you'll just step out of the light for a minute and walk in disobedience to Him. Now the devil wants you to believe that God is inadequate for you and that you are entitled to something better than He has to offer. But friends, it is a lie literally from the depths of hell. The enemy of your soul wants you to be convinced that you don't have everything in God But friends, it is the idols, it is the false gods that are inadequate and impotent. God isn't content to just have a little corner of your life, to have a little corner of of the shelf in your heart. No, He's worthy not only of the entire shelf, but He demands entire and exclusive sovereignty over His people. There is no room for other gods. There is no room for idols on the throne of your heart as far as God is concerned. And it's not that God doesn't want you to have good things. No, He does want you to have good things. But He wants you to see that He can give you all that you actually need. Romans 8.32 says this, It says, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, us all being Christians, He's writing to Christians, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? What He asks, indeed what He demands, is that we submit all things to His service. Not that it's bad for you to have things. It's not necessarily bad for you to have things. But what is bad, what God wants to avoid, is things having you. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, he declares in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. Verses 10, uh, verse, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. What God compares to that? None. None. This is a God who doesn't need you But notice I didn't say he doesn't want you. 
He wants you. He invites you to experience fellowship with Him. And to that end, He sent the Lord Jesus Christ to reconcile you to Himself, to bridge the divide between God and man, paying the sin debt of all who believe on Him in order that they may draw close in fellowship, indeed in sonship to God. But know this, friends. He won't share you. He won't share you. You must dethrone the idols that contend for him, for the, with Him for the throne of your heart. I mean, after you read a chapter like this, you don't want God to be the one to come into your life and dethrone your idols for you, do you? He alone is worthy of being your highest priority in life, your greatest love in life. This passage is a reminder that yes, God should be feared. But for those of us who have feared Him and have drawn near to Him through faith in His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, we also come to know Him as a God who can be both trusted and loved. Just as the Ark of the Covenant fell into the hands of God's enemies, His Son fell into the hands of His enemies. And yet the Lord Jesus did not lay His heavy hand upon them. Instead, He yielded Himself up to death on a cross where the power of death and the plague of God's wrath that should have fallen on you and me fell on Him instead so that now He who believes in Him, in Christ, will live even if He dies and everyone who lives and believes in Him will never die. What Jesus basically said in John 11, verses 25 and 26. Friends, God reigns supreme over all the idols, over all the false gods that the minds of fallen men can conceive of. And thus, what we must do, if we understand this, if we even begin to understand this, what we must do is we must seek the grace of the one true God who makes all the false gods of man fail and fall. And the place to find that grace is in Jesus Christ, who died for us. Because Jesus defeated our greatest enemy, death, by rising from the grave on the third day, you and I can live our lives without fear of any Philistine foes. God is sovereign over all. God is worthy of all of our devotion. And He alone must be our highest priority in life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word once again and the way that it reminds us of the poison that idolatry is and yet how inclined our hearts are to to not make You our top, our greatest priority and our greatest love. We thank You that There's grace to be found in Christ Jesus, whom you sent to be a propitiation for our sins, to cover our sins, including idolatry. But we ask, O Lord, that by the power of your Holy Spirit working within us, that you would help us to not only identify the idols in our lives, but to see their powerlessness. 
Help us to see their inadequacy, their insufficiency, and help us to see the complete and absolute sufficiency of Christ. That our lives may be yielded to Him for His glory. In His name we pray. Amen.